Before we begin the episode, is a couple of words from this week's sponsor of the show. Do you live in London and are you already thinking with all good intentions, New Year, New Me and thinking about burning off the Christmas festivities this year but you're a bit worried that if you join a gym you're actually not going to bother going? Then why not try E-Squared? Based in London, it lets you book the coolest and best fitness classes and gym sessions with just a couple of clicks on a simple app. And it's a pay-as-you-go service, so there's no more feeling guilty for wasting all of your hard-earned cash on a monthly gym membership that you don't use. You just pay for the workout that you attend, and that could be from anything from yoga to boxing, right through things such as indoor cycling or high-intensity interval training. E-Squared aggregates everything you want and more. You can try the E-Squared app now. It's downloadable for free on iOS and Android, and if you head there and use the code POD20, that's pod two zero. You can get yourself £20 free credit for your first session. Simple or what, eh? E-squared. It aggregates everything you want and more. Hello all and a happy new year with a warm welcome on what's a very cold day to 2019 on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. A show gathering the obscure and the forgotten cases from the shores of the UK and Ireland. I'm Paul, the creator and enthusiast of the show's title and it's fantastic having you guys join me here today again. And that's it now, the holidays are now over and done for another year. They've finished as soon as they start really aren't they? I hope that you all had some good ones anyway with a lot of nice prezzies thrown in. And if you didn't, well, then I hope you got socks and Lynx Africa at least. For those listeners not in the UK, Lynx Africa is scraping the proper bottom of the barrel for a gift. It's the deodorant that you start off using when, as a teenager, you first start to stink. is vile and it's about as effective as an inflatable dartboard. And bizarrely, still for sale. Can't understand that. No, not a clue why. Or whatever the women's equivalent to Lynx Africa is. I'm not too sure about that. But there's, so if any listeners can put me right, that'd be much appreciated. Because there has to be one, doesn't there? Thanks very much this week to my continuing and latest Patreon supporters. That's Robert Walm, Dan the Mortgage Man, Eve Russell de Clifford, Rebecca Davis, Ellie de Villiers, Terence Scannell and Dean Sanders, who's actually increased his pledge twofold. It's very kind of you and much appreciated guys and I hope that you've enjoyed the latest bonus Patreon episode number 12 which came out a minute into the new year as well as of course the other 11 bonus episodes that are still available. 2019 will be business as usual with the show. A bonus episode will still come out on the first of each month for supporters which you guys can be too quite simply for a reasonable amount each month. The details are in the show notes alongside the social media links. 
I still haven't managed to get around doing that audio and video of me discussing the month's cases for a Patreon supporter bonus, which I have promised. I just simply haven't been able to find the time to do so because I'm absolutely crazy busy guy. But it is still the plan, along with some other projects for this year, 2019. Watch this space and I'll let you know more when I know more. So I thought, what better way to start the new year than by bringing the show's third listener-written episode, which I have been promising for a while now. There are a pair of cases that were sent in by a couple of long-term listeners for the episode today, one that I was familiar with when it was submitted, and one that I wasn't. I'd like to remind everyone that there is still the usual offer out there. If you have a case that you think is a suitable fit for an episode of the show, and you fancy researching and writing it up like these two guys have, then I'm all ears and I'm interested and you can get in touch through mail or social media, whatever works best for you. Both of the cases this episode are relatively recent ones and may or may not be familiar to listeners. As ever on the show, the episode does contain descriptions of crimes that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so discretion is as always advised. Bearing that in mind, welcome to 2019 on the show and please join the true crime enthusiast for Listener Week number three. Alan Kent QC, prosecuting, told the court she actually thought that one day he would kill her. That day came on Sunday, July the 31st. Those words were spoken to a packed Wolverhampton Crown Court during a trial in March 2012 and it's a fitting way to start the first case for this listener-based episode. Some months ago now I was contacted by a listener to the show who knew the perpetrator of the crime involved in this first tale and he was kind enough to share personal recollections and anecdotes about him with me. As I've said before, things like this give a bit of colour to any narrative that I always find helps. But before I get to that, we best hear about the reason that the perpetrator was there in court. It deals with a story that's sadly all too common among many households worldwide, domestic violence. There is never any excuse for domestic violence and when the abuser says I'll never do it again or you drove me to it that is complete bollocks. Once is too many times and nobody ever drives a person to do that. Many people find the courage to escape this and I'm sure that many people are indeed remorseful for their actions and they never ever repeat it. But for many it's an empty promise and a very poor excuse and sadly many people also put up with it out of fear or having nowhere else to turn. And occasionally domestic violence spills into something much worse. The listener who submitted this case, we shall just call him Lance, takes up the story in his own words. I first met David Palmer when I was 13 years old in 1983, as myself and my family had recently moved into the Old Bury area of the West Midlands, about six miles north of Birmingham. There was a huge gang of lads that used to congregate outside the local chip shop on the Lion Farm estate and David himself lived in the centre of this estate with his mother June and his elder sister Kerry. Whilst I was going to the chip shop one night, the gang of lads loitering outside the chippies started to speak to me as we were all of similar ages. We all instantly hit it off and became instant friends. David was very noticeable in the group because of the huge scar on his neck it was very big and quite severe and I later found out that the scar ran down the whole side of his body and was caused by hot water falling onto him when he was a very young child. He was conscious of this 
and would always do what he could to cover the scar with as many clothes as possible. David attended St. Michael's High School, which was just a short walk away from where he lived. I attended a different school to the rest of the lads, but each night we would all meet up outside the chip shop, and on Fridays we'd all go to the St. Michael's Youth Club for a few hours. David was not very tall for his age, but was very stocky, with a similar build to that of a boxer. He was a very likeable person with a good sense of humour and fun about him, and our early teenage years were mostly uneventful, with us all looking forward to the day that we would leave our various schools. When that day came, we all started looking for jobs, as none of us did particularly well at school, and only acquired the basic low-level exam passes. David and a couple of the other lads all got a job together at a local window-making company called Glass Direct, and we stayed in touch as much as possible. We'd all enjoyed sports and played for various teams, with myself and David playing for the same local football team called Lion Farm United. Although David quit playing football after a short while, I myself continued to play for the team. We were all now around the 16 to 17 year old mark and our main interests were girls and pubs. Every Friday when we got paid from our respective jobs, we would head down to the most well-known pub in our area called the Hen and Chickens. Friday night was the main night for the pub, and although we were slightly underage to be drinking alcohol, we knew the door bouncers so had no problems in getting in there. David by this time had started bodybuilding, and had become even bigger around the arms and chest, and was quite a force should any fights occur. He was always very loyal to his friends when the occasional disagreement would occur with other gangs, and he had my back many times and could definitely handle himself in these situations. Although in these times he was never a troublemaker, he would never walk away from a fight either, and I've witnessed him myself many times giving lads a good hiding. Sometimes people would comment about his scar, and that's the thing that would make him most angry. He would often confront people that would comment on the scar, and more often than not, this would end up in a fight. When David was around 20 years old, we all went for a weekend break in Wrexham. It was a short tour for the football team. We'd play a few friendly games in the daytime, and although David had stopped playing for the team, he was still invited to come on the tour with us. It was whilst we were in Wrexham on that weekend in the early 1990s that he met a lady and developed a relationship with her. I'm not sure of her full name, but I knew her as Dee. Each weekend, David would go over to Wales and spend the weekend with his new girlfriend, and she would also visit him up in the West Midlands from time to time. David was getting more serious about this relationship and after many months of travelling over to Wales each weekend, he decided that he wanted to move to Wrexham on a permanent basis. So he moved over there, and he and his girlfriend got a flat together and were both happy. He also managed to find a job relatively quickly, and was pleased that the job was doing pretty much the same as he'd been doing in England, which was making UPVC windows. Now whilst I didn't see David too regularly when he was living in Wales, we'd often meet up for a few beers on the weekends that he returned to England. He'd often tell me how happy he was with his life there, and it would be in his own words, the happiest time of his life. He lived in Wales for about two and a half years, but eventually the relationship broke down, and he returned to England and back to his mother's house to live. We continued where we'd left off previously, by going to the pub, watching football, and attempting to get lucky with the opposite sex. David was relatively shy around women, and I always had the impression that he found it hard work to make conversation. David did try to make up with a girl from Wales, but nothing materialised and he lived in England from then on. I did notice on his permanent return to England 
that he'd become bigger in size and also more aggressive, although not towards his friends, he seemed to have a very short temper. David was by now into his mid-twenties and his life at this stage was becoming a bit mundane. Although he still had some close friends, most of his old school friends were now in relationships and he started to drift away from the group. He was also going from job to job without feeling settled anywhere. At this stage I wasn't seeing David on a regular basis as I was in a relationship myself and was planning my own wedding. I would bump into him from time to time in various pubs but I wasn't particularly keen on his newly acquired friends. Just by looking at these guys it was easy to tell that they're not your average blokes but were indeed very shifty people. They always looked like they were looking for trouble and I'd been informed that they were also well-known drug dealers with some previous time served at Her Majesty's pleasure. Each time I'd bump into them, they always looked menacing, and David wouldn't be his usual self. He always seemed to be under the influence of drugs, and was regularly involved in fights. By this stage, he'd moved out of his mother's house, and his relationship with his family was fractured, especially between him and his sister, who were not as close as they'd previously been. David had a few relationships with women during this period, but nothing of any note. That was until a few years later, when he met Stella. Now they had a turbulent and rocky relationship for a few years, regularly falling out and getting back together, but they did eventually have a daughter together. David was by this time dealing drugs as well as taking them, and he'd often be seen in the local pubs around the area doing his deals. Although David was now separated from Stella, he remained close to their daughter and would often spend weekends with her, although he wasn't the most reliable of fathers and would often miss his scheduled appointments to pick his daughter up. He was still heavily involved with drugs at this time, and Stella would often voice her concerns about him being a more responsible father. It was early in 2008 that David met Kerry Smith. Now, Kerry was known locally as being a very nice girl. She often frequented the local pubs at weekends and it was on one of these nights that she met the father of one, David Palmer. At first, their relationship was on a bit of a casual basis but things gradually got more serious and they soon moved in together. So there's an 11 year gap between this guy David and Kerry but love is blind and it sees past anything like this or a person's faults and at first the couple were happy. They shared a house in the Mincing Lane area of the West Midlands region of Rowley Regis but rapidly their relationship went downhill. Lance continues After they'd moved in together the relationship had become volatile mainly due to David's mood swings, his drug taking and the fact that he was basically a very jealous person. Occasionally Kerry would go out with her friends and David would always interrogate her upon her return home. His drug use that he tried to hide from her was making him more paranoid by the day and although they were still living together, Kerry was very fearful of David's bad temper. So David Palmer's a heavy drug user and dealer well known throughout the local pubs for doing so. And doesn't this seem a familiar tale? A jealous partner, paranoid over something misconstrued that they've seen on Facebook, for example, or getting ideas that their partner has been cheating on them with someone else? Perhaps it's actually the fact that they're out without them, ego out of their control. It's how David Palmer was, do you think? He was abusive towards Kerry from early in their relationship, and arguing soon spilled into violence. It may have started with a push, which became a slap, and this developed into a savage beating, becoming a not uncommon occurrence. 
Now it's time to get out there really, isn't it? As we say, some people may be blinded by infatuation or feel that they have nowhere to go and are trapped. And then other reasons may keep them in the home. Because only a few short months after the couple had met and moved in together, Kerry found out that she was pregnant, and the couple's daughter Samantha was born in early 2009. Although both parents were pleased with their new arrival, it didn't stop David's jealous streak or his paranoid mood swings, and it certainly didn't stop his violent behaviour towards Kerry. Their relationship was on and off like a light switch, and a terrified Kerry had called the police on numerous occasions following his threatening or violent behaviour. Occasionally he'd be arrested, although no serious charges were ever brought as a result. Eventually, Kerry couldn't take any more of his controlling, violent and frightening behaviour, and she decided to move her and Samantha back into the safety of her parents' house. Undeterred, David would often be around at the house making threats and demanding to see Samantha, which would often again turn violent. In 2010, Palmer received a suspended prison sentence after pleading guilty to assault occasioning actual bodily harm after attacking Carrier at a parent's home in March of that year. After a row had started, Palmer had beaten Kerry badly with a broom handle and he then punched her several times, leaving her with a fractured left rib and severe bruising to her head and face. And he just got a suspended sentence for that. It makes you absolutely sick, doesn't it? Kerry was constantly living in fear of Palmer now and she told police on more than one occasion that she was actually frightened for her life. Palmer was calling her constantly about having access to Samantha which Kerry was unsurprisingly reluctant to grant because of her fears for her daughter's safety. Undeterred, he was constantly still turning up at her parents' house causing bother, and eventually Kerry sought out the support of an online Facebook group for people who'd found themselves in similar violent domestic situations. She found a group who would listen to her woes and fears because they had experience and understanding of being in the similar situations, and she became pen pals with the father of a domestic violence victim, Michael Brown, whose daughter, 36-year-old mother Claire Wood from Greater Manchester, had been strangled and set alight in a horrific case by a man that she'd met shortly before via Facebook. And that's a case that incidentally will feature on the show in a future episode. So at this time, Palmer was out on bail for harassing Kerry, and he was still also serving the suspended sentence for attacking her at her mother's house. Kerry had expressed all of her fears about Palmer through messages that she'd sent to Michael Brown, and in a message dated July the 27th, 2011, she wrote to him, I've been through a violent relationship. He hit me, and when I left him and went to live with my mum, he broke into my mum's house and broke my ribs. His bail conditions are not to come anywhere near my road and not to contact me in any way. I'm now that terrified that I sleep with my head up against the bedroom door and Samantha in bed with me. I really do think that these bail conditions are not going to stop him as that if he's found not guilty of the harassment, he'll just keep coming. What if he gets into my house and takes mine or my daughter's or both of our lives? Around the same time, Kerry confided similarly in her friend Joanne Adams, telling her that she feared Palmer would kill her. She said, I'm going to die and my daughter is going to grow up without a mum. I'll definitely be dead next time. Poor woman. I mean, what an awful situation that must be to be in. It's absolutely horrendous. Probably living in fear like that. Terrible. 
Just four days after a letter to Michael Brown now, Sunday, July the 31st, 2011. Kerry and Samantha had by this time moved into a rented property of their own in Hanover Road in Rowley Regis, trying to break free of the harassment from David Palmer. His bail conditions were that he couldn't approach a road or contact her in any way, so she must have thought she had some, at least some breathing space, although she was undoubtedly still on edge. As was usual on Sundays, late in the morning Kerry and Samantha would set off to visit her parents for the afternoon and would catch a bus from a stop in Rowley Regis High Street, just next to the Malt Shovel public house. Regular as clockwork every Sunday. So at about 11.30am that day, the pair set off to the bus stop only a short walk away, and ten minutes later, Kerry called into a newsagent situated next door to the pub. She was followed into the shop by David Palmer. Palmer knew her routine, he knew that she'd be catching the bus to go and visit her parents at the time, and he'd been waiting for her. Witnesses later described the young woman trying to get out of the shop to escape Palmer. He was demanding to see their child and was blocking her path trying to stop her fleeing the confrontation. She eventually managed to get past him and outside to the pavement where the row continued. Sharon Tui, the landlady of the malt shovel, heard raised voices outside the pub and described later you could tell it was people having an argument. She said that she became concerned because it was obviously a nasty confrontation, and went on, I couldn't hear what they were saying, but I did hear the woman say, get off me. Mrs. Toy said that she heard, then heard a high-pitched scream and recollects, that alarmed me, I'll always remember it. She then looked out of a window and saw a man running across a nearby pub car park. To me, he had a grin on his face, she added. When he was running and punching a man who approached him, it looked to me like he was laughing. When Kerry had refused to listen to Palmer, he'd plunged a kitchen knife into the 29-year-old mother three times. Kerry suffered two stab wounds to the chest and one to the back before collapsing onto the ground. Palmer then fled, leaving her seriously injured and bleeding on the pavement. Sharon Toy immediately went outside and saw a number of people desperately trying to help Kerry, including a passing nurse. She later said, I recognised the girl, but her face was distorted and there was a lot of blood. I couldn't put a name to her face, but when I was making my statement to police, I realised I knew who it was. She'd been in my pub, and it really upset me. Despite Kerry being rushed to Russell Hall Hospital, where surgeons battled to save her life, her wounds were too grave, and she sadly died shortly after being admitted. Palmer by this time had fled to a friend of his house in nearby Macmillan Road, Stuart Haycox. Haycox told the court later that David Palmer had seemed normal when he first turned up at his home, but he then became edgy when he heard police sirens and the sound of a helicopter. He said that he asked Palmer if he'd done anything, to which Palmer replied, I can't tell you, but it's bad. Palmer was then asked if the sirens and helicopter had anything to do with him, and he replied, I think so. And they were indeed. The horrific murder in broad daylight of a pretty young mother tends to bring out a rapid police response, doesn't it? And the response was effective because within a few hours, David Palmer was in police custody, where he quickly admitted killing Kerry. He was charged with her murder and remanded in custody awaiting trial. 
As news of Kerry's death broke and a shocked and devastated family was left to try to come to terms with what had happened and give immediate care for Samantha, a Facebook memorial page entitled Kerry Louise Smith R.I.P. was set up with many friends of hers posting emotional tributes. More than 4,500 messages were added to it while it was active. One from Sarah Compton wrote, Kerry Smith, you were such a star. I can't believe you've been taken away at such a young age and in such an awful way. I have so many memories of you which will be cherished forever. Love you, rest in peace, four kisses. Tributes were also left alongside flowers that were placed near the murder scene and one from someone who simply signed as Jane read, In loving memory of Kerry, so sorry you were taken in such a tragic way. You didn't deserve that. You were a lovely person and will be remembered with love and affection. Take care up there. These warm sentiments were also later expressed by Kerry's family, who requested that family and friends wear just bright colours in memory of their beloved daughter at her packed funeral service, which was held at St Paul's Church in Long Lane at 2pm on the 12th of August. David Palmer's trial for the murder of Kerry Smith began at Wolverhampton Crown Court in March 2012, where he admitted manslaughter but denied murder on the grounds of diminished responsibility. During the four-week trial, the court had heard how Kerry lived in a state of abject terror of Palmer, who was described as a man consumed with jealousy, anger and hatred, and how he would regularly beat her during the course of their relationship. Even when the relationship was over, he continued harassing her for shared custody of their child. They heard how this had continued for a period of nearly three years, and about a fortnight before her death, how Palmer had been arrested once again for harassment of her, having a complete failure or refusal to leave Kerry alone, constantly calling her mother's home, disregarding any harassment orders and suspended sentence for assault upon her that he was still subject to at the time of her murder. He had absolutely terrorised Miss Smith, said Mr Kent, prosecuting, and just before she died, she'd written a letter in which she expressed her fears about being killed at his hands. Just four days later, Palmer stabbed her three times with a kitchen knife in broad daylight outside the Malt Shovel public house, and Kerry died, despite being rushed to hospital where frantic attempts were made by surgeons to save her life. Several witnesses gave testimony at Palmer's trial, including Stuart Haycox and Sharon Toy, and the jury was shown shocking CCTV footage of the attack and of Palmer lying in wait for Kerry beforehand as she entered the newsagents in Blackheath High Street. Palmer could clearly be seen crouched behind a wooden board watching for her entering the shop before following her in and confronting her and ultimately launching his frenzied attack on the helpless mum stabbing her three times before fleeing. Palmer didn't give evidence in his own defence during the trial, but a consultant forensic psychiatrist called on his behalf told Wolverhampton Crown Court that Palmer had been suffering from a severe psychological disorder. The jury was told Palmer had problems functioning in the world from an early age and could have, these could have reduced his ability to control himself, particularly when emotionally aroused or upset. Now, it doesn't sound like the Palmer that Lance remembers there, does it? And it's certainly nothing to do with him being a paranoid, drug-using, domestic abuser then, isn't it? Of course not. 
On the 3rd of April 2012, the jury of six men and six women retired for just 80 minutes to consider the evidence presented before returning their unanimous verdict of guilty of murder, an announcement from the jury foreman that was met with applause from members of Kerry's family. David Palmer showed no reaction to the verdict, and not once did he look in the Smith family direction. Sentencing in to life imprisonment, Judge John Warner said it was clear that Palmer had been violent and controlling towards Miss Smith and to a previous partner. He said that the previous suspended sentence and harassment charge had done nothing to deter him, adding, It's not surprising that she feared that one day you would kill her. It was a fear that she expressed in those final days of her life. The judge said it was understandable that Miss Smith had issues with Palmer and told Palmer it was quite clear that he intended killing his ex-partner because she would not bend to his overpowering will with regards to access to Samantha, who would one day have to come to terms with the violent loss of her mother. The judge said a victim impact statement presented to the court by Kerry's sister Sue Smith was profoundly moving and added that Palmer must stay behind bars for a minimum of 23 years before ever being considered for release. Upon his release from custody, depending of course on whenever that would be, he would then remain on life licence for the rest of his days. Palmer was then taken down to begin his life sentence. Afterwards, Sue Smith welcomed the sentence passed and said, We now have justice for Kerry. Losing her has destroyed our lives. We have a missing link in the family chain and it will never be replaced. Kerry was a kind, loving and devoted mother whose life had been made complete with the birth of Samantha. We do know, however, that she will live on in her beautiful daughter. She thanked the prosecution in the case and the police and said, Most importantly, it was the people who gave evidence. We'd like to thank them for their bravery both at the scene and in court. Speaking after the hearing... Detective Inspector Simon Assel of West Midlands Police said, Palmer will not be eligible for parole until 2035 and will remain behind bars after that time if he is still deemed a potential danger to the public. David Palmer is a jealous, controlling and violent man. Armed with a knife, he went to an area where he knew Kerry would be and stabbed her before running off and leaving her bleeding to death on the pavement. He fully intended to kill her and in doing so finally exerted the ultimate control over her. Several members of the public came forward as witnesses to help support the inquiry. Both the investigation team and Kerry's family are grateful for their help. Now the case was later referred to the IPCC as both Palmer and Kerry were known to local police following several previous domestic incidents. Although there's no record of any findings of police negligence in this case. So what did you guys think? Do you think that there was more that the police could have done? This wasn't a case that I knew and it was one that angered me. I despise domestic violence in any way and I'm only too aware that some people become obsessive and have a sense of entitlement to seeing their children, deserving or not. Now I support wholeheartedly deserving parents being able to see their children and have access to them but if the said parent after access is a drug-using violent abuser and not fit to be in the child's life, then I quite rightly understand the parent with custody refusing this access in general fear for their child's safety. If someone's knocked seven bells out of you often, and they stalk and harass you, then you're going to be wary, and you're going to put your child's safety over absolutely anything, aren't you? 
Reading up about the case, I was left feeling that there needs to be a bit of a rethink of the stalking and harassment laws and measures that need to be put in place for cases such as this. I mean, these measures did absolutely nothing to deter Palmer, did they? And it resulted in a young child being left to grow up free of a father that she wouldn't have wanted, but bereft of a mother that she very much would have. Or is it a case that regardless of whatever measures are put into place, if an individual is hell-bent and focused upon destroying a person's life, then nothing but incarceration or death will stop them from doing so? Let's hear your thoughts and opinions in the discussion thread about it. And thanks very much to Lance for highlighting Kerry's story, which is a very sad case indeed. Plus supplying his recollections and memories of Palmer. I'm sure that he'd agree with me just how much people can change, eh? The second tale for this episode was one that I had come across before, and whilst I'd fancied creating a themed episode around it and other cases like it, I wasn't too sure where to start. And then lo and behold, following the offers and requests that I've put out many times on the show for listeners to get in touch, the case was sent to me by listener Mike Featherstone. I've had it for a number of months now, and I've long been promising this listener episode, but forgive me, I often chop and change the order of episodes for the show. I express my sincere thanks to Mike for the research and work that he put into this, and I hope that you guys will find it as interesting a case as I have, possibly a familiar one to a few also. Salford is a city to the west of Manchester, closely adjoining its larger neighbour, but with its own distinct character. In its prime in the 1930s, Salford was a thriving city, linked to Liverpool by the Manchester Ship Canal, and having its own busy docks on the canal and providing employment for many thousands of local people. By the 2011 census, despite an 8% increase in population in the previous decade, the numbers were still only two-thirds of its peak in the early 1930s. A combination of lost manufacturing and the closure of the docks had brought about a steady decline in Salford's fortunes. Media City was subsequently built in the old docks area, and today it contains a large part of the BBC's production of children's TV, news, sport and well over a hundred other media companies, together with prestige apartments and upmarket leisure facilities. But in the period in question for our next tale in this episode, these were merely proposals and Salford was still a city that was well in decline. So the scene is set and there are a couple of players in our tale. The first that we shall meet is a man called David Totten. 26-year-old David Totten was already a well-known figure in the Salford criminal underworld, a big handy-looking fella who was into all sorts and who relished his reputation as a local hardman and feared figure. He thoroughly enjoyed the lifestyle and the perceived respect that this reputation afforded him. So when in January 2006 he was one evening refused entry by bouncers into a Manchester nightclub, as Totten knew an acquaintance of his named Bobby Spears was inside, he thought that he'd get around it by telling the door staff to go and tell Spears that Totten was waiting outside. If they didn't know who he was from his reputation, Spears could vouch for him. This was how his reputation worked. 41-year-old Bobby Spears lived in the Presswich area of Manchester, and while nominally he worked as one of the directors of a security firm named PMS Security, it was really a front as he enjoyed the fruits of his illegal involvement in Greater Manchester's gangland activity. And Spears was quite heavily involved in this scene, 
enough to have netted him such luxuries as having his own villa in Spain and an executive box at Manchester United's Old Trafford ground. Although based on recent seasons, you probably couldn't give him away now. He knew every mover, shaker, rogue and wrongdoer in the area and he certainly knew the up-and-coming David Totten. The evening in question, Spears had indeed been at the nightclub and when the doorman fetched the older man to the entrance, Spears came out of the club, took one look at Totten and feigned ignorance, denying point-blank that he knew him, even though he knew perfectly well who Totten was. Now whether this was intentional disrespect for someone that he couldn't be arsed with, whether it was designed to belittle Totten, or perhaps it was even a bit of a jokey wind-up, the reasons for Spears doing this have never been disclosed. Spears' snub left Totten humiliated and forced to leave the nightclub. In the weeks following this incident, David Totten suddenly began regularly drinking in Bobby Spears' local pub, The Brass Handles, on Edgehill Close in Pendleton in Salford. Built in 1975, The Brass Handles was your typical inner city estate pub. For those listeners in the UK, think The Jockey in Shameless, full of locals with intimidating stares and sometimes implied violence towards those who dared to trespass into their local. Now I don't know about anybody else, but I kind of like places like this. I'm not a troublemaker at all, but I do enjoy a place with some character. A few years ago I went to see Oasis play at the City of Manchester Stadium and went to a similar pub for a few beers beforehand. I'll always remember it because this place had no tables or chairs in, nothing that could be picked up and chucked basically, and it had a proper gauntlet of bouncers outside. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. A very memorable place because I don't mind a danger pint every now and again. And it goes without saying what a gig it was as well. Blur versus Oasis, my absolute arse. For the record, there was never any contest. It was Oasis all the way. So Spears took this behaviour, Totten turning up and becoming a regular at his local as a message read threat and his response to this was typified by his much later remark to police, we take care of our own problems. Spears' problem solving was to prove fatal. We're now off four miles from Salford to Mossside, an inner city area of South Manchester. It was once a centre of immigration after the Second World War, but a rise in poverty in the northwest in the preceding years due to falling industry and job relocation saw an increase in crime and throughout the late 1970s and 1980s Moss Side especially saw a well-publicised increase in gang violence. It gained a special notoriety in the 1980s for its many violent gun crimes due to the gangland turf wars over the lucrative local drug trade and it was instrumental in gaining Manchester the nickname at the time Gunchester. Throughout this, there were, and still are, two main established rival Manchester gangs, these being the Gooch Gang and the Doddington Close Gang, who were formerly known as the Pepper Hill Mob. The antagonism between these two and other Manchester-based street gangs led to a string of murders and attempted murders throughout the 1980s and into the 1990s, until a combination of police targeting, social initiatives and improved communication within the local community led to a dramatic decline in gun deaths by the early years of the new century. Despite the relative calm though, gun crime and gangland shootings did still of course occur, and for reasons that as we've said have never been explained fully or what had exactly happened between the pair, 
Bobby Spears decided that it would be best if David Totten was removed from the scene permanently. It was therefore no surprise that, because of the circles that he moved in, Bobby Spears turned to the next planer in our tale, Ian McLeod, for assistance with his problem. 43-year-old Ian McLeod of Victoria Street in Radcliffe was mostly retired from serious crime in 2006, but as he was nominally the de facto leader and a founder member of the Doddington Close Gang, he was still a go-to person who'd been in trouble more times than the letter T and he was someone that you really didn't want to mess with at all. And he was still involved enough that an offer of £10,000 from Bobby Spears to arrange and carry out the murder of David Totten was too tempting to resist for even the most retired. The added advantage for Spears to further him away from the whole plot was that by contracting McLeod to arrange this, it would look like an attack by a Manchester gang on a Salford gang and could thus be blamed on gang war rather than a personal vendetta. It's now lunchtime on Sunday March the 12th 2006 and Bobby Spears is watching the Manchester United versus Newcastle United Premiership football match from the comfort of his executive box at United's Old Trafford ground. Spears often watches United away matches from the comfort of his local pub, the Brass Handles, but as a home fixture he would always take advantage of his executive box, especially today, he wouldn't have been anywhere else today. He has a number of mobile phones with him and he keeps checking each of them constantly, firing off messages and receiving them back as well throughout the first half of the match. United are leading as the game heads into half-time and as Spears heads down to the bar for a half-time pint, he fires off one last text message. Not too far away from Old Trafford, at the same time, the Brass Handles pub was quite well packed with more than a 100 customers also watching the match on the big screen there, including David Totten and several friends of his, one of these being a man named Aaron Travers. They'd taken over a table in the snooker room of the pub and were watching the game on one of the pub's many television screens. Also sat at the bar with a direct line of view of the snooker room was a 38-year-old secretary from PMS Security named Connie Howarth. Secretary was only an official role for Howarth really, as she also had a double life as a fixer for gang deals, and she'd already had a five-year prison sentence under her belt after automatic weapons were found in the boot of her car. Today, Howarth wasn't in the pub to watch United play, she was acting as a spotter, and she was constantly using her mobile phone to message four men sat outside the pub, a short distance away in a black Ford Mondeo, precisely where, in the bar, David Totten was sitting and what he was wearing. The four men in the car were the facilitator Ian McLeod, another unnamed man, and two young Mossside gang members, 20-year-old Carlton Alvaranga and 19-year-old Richard Austin two young men who'd been chosen to perform the hit upon David Totten. It's widely believed that both were reluctant to go through with the plan, but they owed a debt to McLeod and by doing this, this would get him off their backs. So there wasn't really much of an option B. That's some debt to have that in it and not a person that you'd want to owe anything to, I imagine. When McLeod got the text message from Spears simply saying, Now sent at half-time in the match so he wouldn't miss any of the game, 
he virtually had to force the reluctant would-be assassins from the car and they slowly made their way to the pub, putting on balaclavas as they did so. Neither Austin nor Alvaranga had ever laid eyes on David Totten before and they didn't know him from Adam, but thanks to the messages sent by Constance Howarth, they had a clear description of him and information as to exactly where he was positioned in the pub. So at half-time, knowing that shit was about to get real, Constance Howarth had discreetly removed herself to the ladies' toilet and was reapplying her lipstick when the two gang members burst in. Masked and armed with a 9mm Glock automatic pistol and another unspecified handgun, they headed directly for the snooker room and for David Totten. The group inside probably didn't even have time to take in what was happening before the bullets started flying. Austin and Alvaranga emptied numerous rounds in the direction of David Totten, and although a table was upended to use as a shield, Totten was hit four times in the chest and face, and his friend Aaron Travers, who jumped up in front of Totten in response, took two bullets himself. Suddenly Alvaranga's gun jammed, and the two shooters turned and ran for the door. But David Totten, who must have been like the Terminator, wasn't killed. Nor was Aaron Travers, although both were seriously injured. And there was suddenly a pub filled with people who were about to make the legend We Take Care of Our Own Problems a reality. And two shooters who'd made a run for the door, but hadn't quite made it out in time. The two shooters were quickly overpowered by other drinkers and were then beaten and shot with their own guns by someone who was in the pub at the time, presumably a rival Mossside gangster or gangsters from the rival Gooch gang, although this has never been confirmed. Fatally injured, the two would-be assassins staggered out of the pub across a recreation ground past children playing, pursued by drinkers onto a nearby grassy area, where they were both repeatedly kicked and beaten further. When the crowd finally dispersed, both were left lying motionless on the grass verge. The father of one of the children playing nearby, who of course remains nameless, described the scene. The children were enjoying their Sunday kickabout when they saw two men running out of the pub. One was shot in the back and fell to the floor and died where he lay. His friend who was in front of him turned around and was shot through the side and then in the back. The children went up to the bodies and were horrified. So having witnessed this, at this point Ian McLeod exited the car parked nearby and walked over towards the two bodies. He was heard to ask someone, are they dead yet? Before casually inspecting the two men lying on the grass verge, then strolling back to his car and driving off. In the meantime, in what was described later as true Salford gangland style, the CCTV system in the pub was immediately ripped out and the recorded footage destroyed. David Totten and Aaron Travers were dragged into a nearby car and driven to Salford Royal Hospital where they were dumped in the car park. They were treated and despite serious injuries, both would make full recoveries. Neither would and have never made a formal statement to police concerning the attempted assassination and nor of any of the other customers who were in the Brass Handles pub that day. They were either warned there and then or instinctively knew not to say anything to the police. A real code of silence or fear exists here. 
It was 2.30pm that afternoon when police were at first contacted and attended the scene, and all they had to go on were two dead bodies, two pay-as-you-go mobile phones that were lying next to the bodies, and a complete wall of silence. The two dead men were soon identified, and although it's easy to feel no sympathy for two men who were, after all, about to commit cold-blooded murder, they did leave grieving families behind. And these were decent-sounding families who did whatever they could to try to steer their children away from the gang culture, which must be like quicksand and so difficult to escape from once you're in and involved. Richard Austin's mother Bridget had even gone as far as to move the family out to Withenshaw to try and help her son escape the clutches of the gangs, but it was to no avail. She later told police, I worried every time Richard would not come home as he was probably in Moss Side. I had no idea who he was with. Unless you're involved with gang culture, I think it must be impossible to know just how difficult it is to walk away from. You'd have to want to more than anything for a start. Then you may find the lifestyle more appealing than a normal daily grind. Then you may crave the perceived respect that it brings you. And of course, you may be intimidated into or pressured into continuing with it. Alvaranga had been released from a four-year prison sentence in 2005, but even before he was released, it's reported that McLeod was trying to visit him to ask him about doing security work for him. So if Alvaranga had even wanted to go straight, McLeod clearly had other ideas for him. I wonder how many gang members are really trapped into the criminal enterprises through fear or intimidation like this. So disappointed in the outcome when news of the botched shooting reached his ears later that day, I'm probably more than a bit worried now that Totten or one of his associates may twig exactly who was behind the hit and reprisals would be coming his way, Spears decided to go and lie low in Benidorm, leaving the country the following day. He had no worries about police catching up with him, he was confident in the alibi that he had for the time of the shooting and the misdirection that he'd put in place that he thought he'd put in place. And as he hoped, while he sunned himself abroad and took advantage of being able to travel around to watch Manchester United's European away ties, police initially did work on the premise that the carnage at the Brass Handles pub was indeed an inter-gang shooting. But forensic work on the two mobile phones lying on the grass next to the bodies was ultimately to pay off in a big way. They were both unremarkable pay-as-you-go mobile phones, which are normally anonymous, but the person who topped one of them up with credit couldn't resist accumulating the Tesco club card supermarket points on their loyalty card. So by following this simple transaction, it was able to be linked to a named person. The boffins who do this magical tracing of mobile stuff and digital examinations, they're absolutely very, so clever people, aren't they? From this one oversight, Police were able to build up links with other mobiles, interlinking the numbers and ultimately producing a web. They managed to link both Austin's and Alvaranga's phone numbers to another number who'd called each of them at least three times on the day of the shooting. That number was traced as belonging to Ian McLeod, and from his number, police soon had a list of other mobile numbers that he'd made calls to on the day of the shooting, including the number of Connie Howarth, who he'd called several times in the hour following the attempted murder. McLeod was also linked to Austin and Alvaranga, 
and then further to Austin as the pair were spotted on CCTV filling a dark-coloured Ford Mondeo car as the service station in Ratcliffe on the day of the shooting. They were then thought to have headed to Kersley to collect another man before driving on to Mossside to collect Alvaranga. Within two hours of them being spotted on CCTV, the four men were parked up outside the Brass Handles pub awaiting a message to carry out an execution. The last number police managed to glean from the web and mobile phone numbers that had begun with the two discarded pay-as-you-go phones, the number that had set this whole fatal ball rolling, was traced to one Bobby Spears. Whilst McLeod and Howarth were soon rounded up, arrested and charged with conspiracy to commit murder, Bobby Spears wasn't anywhere to be found, and nor was he going to come back to the UK, no doubt having heard what was going on back home through the grapevine. The following year, after a trial at Minishul Street Crown Court, which relied solely on the evidence gathered from the pay-as-you-go phones, there's no chance of any witness testimony here, both MacLeod and Howarth were found guilty of conspiracy to commit murder and were each sentenced to life imprisonment. MacLeod was told he would serve a minimum of 21 years in jail, while 38-year-old Howarth would serve at least 20. Justice Andrew Smith said, Two men died, they weren't innocents, but they were young, their lives were not expendable. In view of the calculated nature of this offence, I consider there is every danger you are incorrigibly involved in violent crime. You will always present a danger to the public. You both have previous offences and have been to prison before. You have both had previous involvement in prison before. You have both had previous involvement in firearms. I consider that in both of your cases, there is significant risk to the public of serious harm as a result of you committing further offences. Detective Superintendent Andy Tattersall, who'd led the investigation, said, This was a premeditated attempt at cold-blooded murder in a pub packed with families and children on a Sunday afternoon. Howarth and MacLeod may not have physically pointed a gun at Totten, but their involvement was so integral to the organisation of this venture that without them it would not have been possible. But their plan was to go disastrously wrong, with two young men being shot dead with one of the weapons that they had themselves taken into the pub. Austin and Alvaranga had walked into the brass handles without any real knowledge of the layout or the location of their intended victim. Their only help was Howarth, who was sat in the vault talking them in on her mobile phone. This is a significant conviction. MacLeod is an influential character within the underworld of Manchester and Moss Side. He recruited those boys and planned an execution. It's because of him that they died. He used his influence to do his dirty work. He's a very, very dangerous man. Spears was finally brought to justice in August 2008 when after 17 months on the run, he was extradited from his Spanish haven. In the 17 months since the shooting, in the time that police had gathered enough evidence to put Howarth and MacLeod away for their part in the crime, they'd also slowly built up the case against Spears, enough to the point where his extradition from Spain was authorised. He was arrested and charged and came to trial at Manchester Crown Court in April 2009, where he pleaded not guilty to the charge of conspiracy to commit murder. 
On the 21st of May 2009, the 41-year-old father of two was convicted of the charge of conspiracy to murder and received a life sentence, with a minimum of 23 years to serve before ever being considered for release. Judge Griffith Williams told him, You've been found guilty on compelling evidence of conspiracy to murder. You were part of a calculated and carefully planned assassination and were prepared for the killing to be done in a crowded public house, causing very real terror. Although the shooting was targeted, there was a very serious risk others may have been injured. Showing no emotion as sentence was passed upon him, Spears was taken down to shouts from the public gallery of Keep your chin up, Bobby. I suppose he's got 23 years to practice doing that. Detective Superintendent Tattersall, again speaking on behalf of Greater Manchester Police, stated after the verdict, I'm really pleased with the sentence. It sends a strong message to the criminals of the city of Manchester that the police have the skill, expertise and the determination to fight serious crime. Bobby Spears was clearly involved in gangland crime. This investigation started with two mobile phones and two dead bodies. That's all we had. Telephone evidence was key, but it isn't just as easy as that. We have to put it all together and analyse it. It's hours and hours and days and days and months and months of dedicated hard work. However, despite the successful convictions already detailed, the Code of Silence still holds very strongly in the area and no one has ever been charged with the murders of Richard Austin and Carlton Alvaranga. The crimes are still officially unsolved murders and as the Code of Silence and Fear still exists in the area, it's unlikely anyone will ever face charges for the killings. The Brass Handles pub was closed by Greater Manchester Police following the shooting and was actually never to reopen. It stood derelict for a few years before being razed to the ground a number of years after the shootings. Perhaps the one person who most likely could identify the shooters of Austin and Alvaranga, and ironically the one person it's unlikely to be due to his serious injuries, is David Totten himself. He recovered quickly from the shooting, but his near brush with death didn't make him rethink and change his lifestyle. So much so that seven months after the shooting, he took part in the savage beating of two car park attendants at the Grosvenor Casino in Manchester. The two victims had tried to help staff eject Totten and three other men due to the misbehaving and intimidating customers in the casino, and it resulted in one 18-year-old casino employee having a double fracture of his jaw and another 49-year-old with severe bruising and a bite mark to his ear. There's a bit of a pattern developing here, isn't there? He's not the sort of person you want to go for a pint with, is it? In October 2007, Totten received a four and a half year prison sentence after admitting assault and unlawful wounding, as well as an unrelated charge of dangerous driving, following another incident where, because he was already banned from the roads, he sped off from police in his Saab 93 convertible, reaching speeds of 80 miles per hour before crashing into bollards and fleeing on foot. Having served his sentence for the casino assault, on the evening of Saturday the 3rd of March 2012, Totten was sitting in the front passenger seat of a stolen Audi A6 estate car in a car park in Colketh, Cheshire, near to a large Sainsbury's supermarket. He was wearing gloves and a rolled-up balaclava on his head, 
In the back seat was Joey Travers, the brother of the man who was shot alongside Totten in the brass handle six years before. Both he and the man in the driving seat, 36-year-old Anthony Granger, had gloves and balaclavas on as well. Granger was well known to police, having several convictions for violent offences and being the prime suspect in the July 2011 theft of items, including a memory stick that was taken from the car of a police officer parked in Saddleworth in Lancashire. Now, it's small beans a memory stick, yeah, but not when it's one that contained the unencrypted details of hundreds of police informants. That was both devastating as well as embarrassing for Greater Manchester Police. Imagine the retributions and executions that could have led to, which it may still even be leading to. Scary stuff, eh? What the three men in the Audi didn't realise was that they were being tailed by an armed surveillance unit. Operation Shire, which had been running since September 2011, was investigating the possible involvement of a Salford gang into armed robberies that had been committed across the northwest of England. They were aware of the occupants of the vehicle and had been surveilling them, and had targeted the stolen Audi, noting that this was the third consecutive day that it had parked up near to the Sainsbury store. David Totten's past had led to him having a firearms marker attached to his file, and thinking that these men were casing the store in preparation for a robbery, police decided to move on the vehicle's occupants. At 7.20pm, a CS gas canister was fired into the car, whilst a tyre was shot out simultaneously, and police demanded that the occupants of the vehicle put up their hands. Anthony Granger was seen to move his hand downwards, and a police officer, whose identity is permanently protected and is known only as Q9, fired a shot from his Heckler & Koch MP5 submachine gun from inside the police car. The bullet passed through Anthony Granger's heart and lungs, killing him instantly. Q9 claimed that he thought Granger was reaching for a gun, however, no gun or any other weapon was found in or near to the vehicle. This began a series of events which are still ongoing in the hands of the CPS, in which a catalogue of errors and omissions by Greater Manchester Police was exposed, and the possibility of charges being brought against senior officers are still being considered. At a subsequent court case, David Totten and Joseph Travers were both cleared of charges of conspiracy to rob, with Totten denying that they were about to commit robbery at the supermarket, and claimed that they were there simply to collect a debt from a mystery man known only as Fenton. I wonder if they couldn't find the guy because he was running after his dog. With trouble attracting him like Kerry Katona to a bad husband, and in what seemed like an almost deja vu set of circumstances, on the 31st of August 2014, Totten was outside Club Live in Manchester when an acquaintance of his was refused entry. Acting as what he referred to later as trying to be a peacemaker, he approached the club and upon Totten being recognised by door staff, the club doors were shut and bolted. Totten then returned to his hired car, a white Peugeot RCZ Coupe, which was parked opposite the club. He got in and reversed down the street, hitting a parked taxi as he did so. He then drove slowly back towards the club, mounted the pavement, and in his own words, slowly nudged the club doors several times with the car. Peacemaker, is that how you make peace then? I'll let you guys be the judge there. 
despite neither the club nor the taxi driver alerting police and no discernible damage being done to the club doors. Several weeks later, for some reason, Totten turned himself in to police and CCTV footage of the incident was miraculously discovered. It got him an eight-month suspended prison sentence, a three-year driving ban and a criminal behaviour order in April 2015, banning him from all city centre bars for two years. In spite of the fact that he was warned that he could face up to five years imprisonment for any breach of this order and was handed a map clearly marked with his exclusion zone, Totten was shortly afterwards spotted in a bar directly opposite the court which had banned him. He was back to court again and was now fitted with a tag, sentenced to a 100 hours unpaid work and given another six months suspended prison sentence. Amazingly, even this didn't deter him and after being spotted in two bars in May 2016, he was once again sent to Manchester Crown Court for sentencing. Even more amazingly, he escaped once again with a four-month suspended sentence, a 28-day curfew, another 100 hours unpaid work, and £250 court costs to pay. Judge David Stockdale told him that it was unlikely in the extreme that he would escape prison in the event of another breach. I bet he would do myself. I mean, he seems to be a charmed man, doesn't he? To date, Totten has avoided any prison term since his incarceration for the casino assault, but he's been in the news several times since. I mean, I've just outlined a couple of times there. There are some links about his exploits included in this week's show notes as well. I pass on my sincere thanks to Mike for his research and writing up this case. It was one I'd heard of but wasn't fully read up on, if you know what I mean. And it will be a topic that we revisit in a future episode of the show. Because when I jumped down the rabbit hole to look into it, there was a hell of a lot that come up. So much so that I definitely think it's a subject worthy of an episode of its own. So some of the research materials for it are now ordered. I'll look into sourcing a few more. And Gangland Manchester is a place that we shall visit again on the show at some point. And boom, we are into 2019 with a True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Once again, my warmest thanks to Lance and Mike for submitting the cases for this episode and for their research. You guys can also, as I've said, please get in touch if you've got an idea for a case that you'd like to research, you think would make for a good episode. I do welcome all suggestions. It'd be great hearing your thoughts about the cases in this week's thread in the True Crime Enthusiast Podcast Facebook discussion group, or if you want to get in touch, then you can do through my social media for the show. So I've had my extended week off of researching and writing up. Well, I say week off, I still always have to add a bit, even to the listener episodes you understand, but I'm back proper nose to grindstone for next week's episode with the first part of a multi-parter, and as promised we're visiting Scotland. I hope to catch you guys then for it. Until the next time, I've been and still am Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all good and safe times, saying thanks very much for joining me, and goodbye for now.